Good evening, church, and Merry Christmas. This month, we've been in our Advent series, Jesus Foretold, where we've looked at passages in the Old Testament that prophesied about Jesus. Our first text a few weeks ago was Genesis 3.15 in the Pentateuch. And then Pastor Andrew gave a sermon from the historical narrative portion of the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Last week we had a sermon from the poetic books in Psalm 110. And this morning, Jixon Coyazo brought it together in Mary's song, the Magnificat, and he hit a home run. But tonight, we're going to look at a text from the prophets. The main theme that we've been tracing through this series is messianic expectation, which started in the Bible all the way back in Genesis 3.15, where God curses the serpent. Remember, Eve overhears that she is going to have an offspring that would crush the head of Satan. That messianic expectation starts there, but is, is heightened throughout the Old Testament, especially in 2 Samuel 7, where God tells David that his son, one of his sons, would reign on his throne forever. The promised son of Eve was also going to be a king. And then in Psalm 110, who, which was written by David, we hear that the promised king would also be a great high priest, that he would be a priest king. And tonight our text is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. So let's stand together and let's read Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Please be seated. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for where you've taken us here, showing us that at the very beginning, a Messiah was promised, that this was always part of the plan. And Lord, we thank you for our text tonight. Lord, we pray that you would give us soft hearts to hear your word and to let it affect us, let it change us. We pray for understanding now, knowing that correct understanding of the word only comes through the Spirit. So we submit ourselves to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Isaiah is a rich book. It's a call of repentance to the kingdom of Judah. It's a statement of judgment over kingdoms who have risen up against God's people. And it's a proclamation of God's activity in and sovereignty over the whole world. In the book, 
the remnant of Israel is given hope for their future despite the judgments, the many judgments that Isaiah pronounces against her rulers. Listen to the words at the very beginning of the book, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's the very beginning of the book. Hope is built in. God promises to his people that someday they would be the bastion of hope for the whole world. That they would be a place of peace and worship because the word of God goes forth. Isaiah is about all of these things. But a unifying theme throughout the book is the theme of Israel's future hope in a Messiah. Isaiah speaks about the Messiah over and over again. So let's first look at the Messiah in Isaiah. A brief overview and background of our text will help us understand it better. Chapter 9, verses 6 through 7 don't just spring up out of nowhere. They're the climax of a building theme starting in Isaiah chapter 6. And by and large, Isaiah is a writing prophet, a writing prophet to the kings of Judah. And he's given a message from the Lord to write down and deliver to Judah's leaders and to her people. Remember, the United Kingdoms under Solomon, the kingdom of Israel, broke into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom that became known as Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah was a prophet to the Davidic kings, the sons of David, sitting on the throne in Judah. Obviously, all of the prophets who have a book in the Old Testament were in some ways writing prophets. But that wasn't always their main ministry like it is for Isaiah. We looked at Micah this summer. We did a whole series in Micah. Micah was most likely a street preacher first and then a writer, a street preacher in Jerusalem. And many of the other prophets are writers and something like visual or performing artists like Ezekiel or Hosea. But Isaiah is Hosea. But Isaiah is primarily a writer. He writes. Chapters 1 through 5 are all written prophecies, all poetic in nature even. But in chapter 6, Isaiah has an encounter with the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. He receives this profound vision of heaven. When he encounters the throne room of heaven and the majesty of the one sitting on the throne, he cries out in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then an angel descends down to Isaiah and touches his mouth with a burning coal. A burning coal from the altar of the Lord in heaven. 
And he's told, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And right there in Isaiah 6, a pattern starts that continues all the way through chapter 12. Judgment and then atonement for sin. A replacement of the bad thing with something much better. First, Isaiah is told to go bring a message to the people. He receives first a burning coal on his lips and then a calling to go and speak to God's people on God's behalf. And then in chapter 7, this writing prophet is, to, is told to go directly to the king. By this time in Israel's history, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, has died. And a new king is on the throne of David. Uzziah and Jotham were both pretty good kings. But this new king, Ahaz, was the worst king that Judah had ever had. Both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles talk about Ahaz a bit. And they're careful to point out that Ahaz worshipped other gods, and most tragically, he even burned his sons as a sacrifice to false gods. He's a bad guy, and he's a bad ruler. He didn't ever seek the Lord's help when he needed it. And in 2 Kings chapter 16, we can read about a crisis in the land that Ahaz does really poorly with. The king of the northern kingdom, Israel, His name was Pekah at the time. And he made an alliance with another country, with Syria, to attack the southern kingdom and wipe out the line of David. But instead of seeking the Lord for help, Ahaz turned to the king of Assyria. And in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah is sent to Ahaz in the midst of this crisis of these two evil kings looking to wipe out the line of David, which should ring bells for you after our series. God promised David that a son would sit on the throne forever. Ahaz is terribly afraid because it looks like they're going to win. The northern kingdom and Syria are about to attack at any time. So God has Isaiah say in chapter 7, verse 4, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. God tells Ahaz to have peace. And in verses 7 through 9, God tells Ahaz that he will not let these two evil kings, these smoldering stumps of firebrands, take out the line of David. In fact, God says that Syria will be conquered immediately. And that in 65 years, the northern kingdom of Israel, the sister country to Judah, will also be conquered. Both of which come true. You can read about all of this in 2 Kings 16. Listen to the words of God in verse 9. When he tells Ahaz through Isaiah, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Isn't that true? Isn't that true for all of us? Unfortunately, Ahaz was not steadfast in his faith. God offers Ahaz the opportunity to ask him for a sign. 
that this will take place, that he'll take out these two evil kings. But Ahaz, in false humility, doesn't take up the offer. If God asks you to do something, even if it's to request him, you should do it. Ahaz doesn't. He turns God down. So listen to Isaiah's flabbergasted response in verses 13 and 14. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. God's going to give Ahaz, this evil king, a sign whether he wants one or not. So listen to the sign. I think you'll recognize it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign to Ahaz is the miraculous birth of a promised son. And this promised son would be named something specific, Emmanuel, God with us. And this prophetic sign is partially fulfilled in the very next chapter. Now, before I move on, I want to talk about Isaiah 14 a little bit more. In the Bible translation world, this verse has caused a lot of controversy. The Hebrew word here that's translated as virgin can easily be translated as maiden or even young woman. But the Greek version of the Old Testament, remember, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The Greek Old Testament was the Bible of the New Testament authors, the Greek translation. And the Greek translation of that word is virgin. So which is it? Is it supposed to be a young woman who gives birth? Or is it a virgin who gives birth? I mean, we're meeting here tonight on Christmas Eve. But I think this option is a false dichotomy. See, the prophecy made to Ahaz is fulfilled in chapter 8. Isaiah's Prophecy wasn't just for Ahaz, though. The prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 has a dual fulfillment. Let me explain. Chapter 8, Isaiah goes into his wife, and she conceives and bears a son. And the son, that son, is the promised son and sign to Ahaz. But they name him a doozy of a name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. It means swift is the spoil, speedy is the plunder. And God explicitly tells Isaiah to name him this name as a statement against these two kings coming against Ahaz. So this is the promised son that fulfills the prophecy to Ahaz. But it's not the ultimate promised son who should be called Emmanuel. God explicitly says that his name should be Emmanuel. And then he tells Isaiah to name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So Isaiah 7.14 is both about a promise made to this evil king, the king of Judah, and a promise made to Israel, to the world about the coming Messiah. And we know that Meher Shalal Hashbaz is not the Messiah because the theme of the promised child continues into chapter 9 in our text today. This child, Meher, is a foreshadow 
of the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, which brings us to our chapter, Isaiah chapter 9. Chapter 8 was a prophecy against the northern kingdom and Syria, but chapter 9 introduces hope. Hope for the people of God. It starts off with a prophecy that a land that was once darkened by idolatry, the northern kingdom, would be made glorious, Galilee of the nations. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The land of Galilee, the land of Galilee in the northern part of Israel, would receive the blessing of divine light. God's glory would be shown to the land of Galilee. All that we read here in these verses is future tense. Now listen to the next few verses. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so why is the nation joyful? Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The people of Israel are finally joyful because God has delivered them from their burden like he did when he used Gideon to defeat the land of Midian in the book of Judges. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So the joy of the nation is increased because their oppressor has been dealt with. And verse 5 tells us that the uniforms of war, the trampling boot and the bloodied garments will be burned. War itself will end. The people rejoice because oppression is taken care of and the world finally has peace. But that's actually not their ultimate foundation for their rejoicing. He goes on. Peace reigns and oppression is over because of what comes next. But before we get there, I want to say two things. First, the book of Isaiah carries on the theme of the Messiah throughout all the way to the end. First as the branch of the stump of Jesse in chapter 11, and as the servant of God in chapters 41 and following, and finally the conquering king near the end of the book. And second, we have to recap where we've come from. All of this information is important if we're going to properly understand Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. In chapter 6, we're introduced to the idea that God himself will deal with sin. And he starts with Isaiah's sin. Then he deals with the sin of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, promising hope to the line of David. And this promise is sealed with a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that promise is partially fulfilled in Isaiah's son in chapter 8. But now, in chapter 9, we're looking for the ultimate fulfillment. Are you with me? Which is what we see. We see the ultimate fulfillment in verses 6 through 7. So second, the Messiah in Isaiah 6 through 7. The basic argument of verse 
Verses two through seven are this. God's people rejoice because God has broken the yoke of the oppressor and their burden is removed because the garments and weapons of war are burned. And the basic reason for all of that is because a child is born. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. In chapter 7, verse 14, the birth of the child was a sign. But here, the birth of the child brings salvation. The word child simply means young boy. But then why use the Hebrew word for son? Isn't that implied? He is both a child and a son. And of course, that is a reference to the promised son of David. The son that would sit on David's throne forever. This child is the fulfillment of that promise. And that child is born to us. Significantly, Isaiah includes himself in that us. He sees this child as his salvation given for him. He goes on. He says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And this phrase and that statement in in verse 7 brings clarification. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. That solidifies what it means for the government to be on someone's shoulder. He is the promised king. This child that would be born is the promised son of David. The government rests upon the shoulders of this child. He would rule and he would rule all things. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These four names are worthy of your time. The promised son, this Emmanuel, would bear these four names as titles. And all four names are made up of two words in the Hebrew. There's a beautiful symmetry to the four names. There's one word that's descriptive of the other in in each name. Yet the descriptive words aren't merely just adjectives that could be tossed around. So the names are rich and each word deserves careful study. Wonderful counselor is the first name. And another translation would be something like a wonder of a counselor. The word wonder draws our attention to who this child could be. Who is this child who is called a wonder? He's not merely somebody extraordinary, but somebody who brings wonder. Commentators have suggested that based on the way the Old Testament Hebrew uses that word in the rest of the Old Testament, that this word wonder is one of the clearest signals to us that this child is divine. This is God himself It's only God who brings wonder. Only God is wonderful, but he is a wonderful counselor. The child who would be king is his own counselor. And no mere man could claim that title. Every king, of course, every earthly king needs their counselors. Wise men surround themselves with wise men, but this king would be his own He already has all of the wisdom and the knowledge that he needs to lead his people and to redeem them. He is a wonder of a counselor. But in case the deity of the child is not clear, the next name makes it explicit. 
He is mighty God. Mighty can be translated as warrior or heroic. God is called by this name directly in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, just one chapter later. It says, the remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. So the idea that this child is the king who sits on the throne of David is now broadened into the fact that he's mighty. He is a warrior king, the conquering God king. He makes war against his enemies and no one can stand against him. He is mighty in his strength. Psalm 24 verse 8 says, Who is the king of glory? The Lord. Strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. This child is the Lord strong and mighty. But he is also everlasting father. This child would eternally be like a compassionate and caring father to his people, full of love overflowing. This is what that name means. It signifies the eternality of this child, his foreverness. And it signifies the relationship he will have with his people. He is both mighty God, a strong warrior who crushes his enemies and an everlasting father to his people. As we apply this name to Jesus, you might be confused. Why would we call Jesus Father when there is God the Father? Now, let's be careful. Isaiah is not referencing the Trinity here in name. The point is the child's relationship to his people. He would be like a loving father to them as he is mighty God. But Jesus also says in John 14 verse 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This child, Jesus, is the one who reveals the Father to us. And the Trinity is mysterious. So we humble ourselves here as we apply these words and titles. The last name is Prince of Peace, which is a perfect final name to list when we consider where Isaiah has taken us so far. Remember, Ahaz... An evil king brought war to his people because of his idolatry. But that evil king would be eclipsed in history by the prince of peace. The peace that this child would bring is eternal. War and oppression are ended by him. Even the garments of war are burned. Part one of verse seven helps us understand this name. Of the increase of his government and of peace There will be no end. Unlike most kings, unlike all kings who increase their rule and control through force and through warfare, this king's government, his rule, will be increased through peace. And his rule and his peace will continually increase. He is the prince of peace. This child will establish and uphold the throne of David through righteousness and justice forever as the perfect king. That's what the next part of verse 7 means. And finally, we read here that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord himself will see that this child, the prince of peace, reigns on the throne of David. It is the action of God. God's promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7 would be ultimately fulfilled 
by this child who is God. The king who sits on the throne of David would be God himself. But this brings us to a a really important idea here in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. This is a human child. A child born of a virgin, but a child no less. Fully human. And we find here that this child will will be called wonderful and, and God and everlasting, which means that this human child is also divine. This child who would be king is also God. The promised son of Eve, the promised son of David, who is our great high priest, is all of these things, and he is God. This is the mountaintop of messianic expectation. Who could possibly fulfill all of these things? Who could possibly be the promised son of Eve and the promised son of David and our great high priest and God himself? Third, messianic expectation fulfilled. You know the answer. And if you don't, here it is. It's Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 claims that the promised son would be God. And the New Testament screams that truth from the very beginning. In Matthew 1, we're told that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Then Matthew shows that he has the kind of authority that only God has. As Jesus authoritatively interprets the law, heals the sick, raises the dead, has authority over nature, is Lord of the Sabbath, and even forgives sins. The angel who speaks to Mary in Luke 1 says that her son would be the son of God. The gospel of John is full of statements from Jesus claiming to be God. You can just trace Certain statements that Jesus makes called I am statements in the Gospel of John to see this. I am, of course, is the divine name reserved only for God. People would not say that in self-identification, but Jesus did. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. John 8.58, before Abraham was, I am. John 14.6-7, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Talking about himself. One of the most profound I am statements is not found in the Gospel of John, but in the Gospel of Mark. And he's asked before his crucifixion. In Mark 14, he's asked, by his enemies, seeking to kill him. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? What does Jesus say? I am. Paul calls Jesus God all the time. Romans chapter 9, verse 5 says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Or oh, how about our preparation for worship tonight? Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's shown and argued over and over in the New Testament that, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. His incarnation is a wonder and something we celebrate tonight. And he will show his might. Jesus is the mighty God in his second coming. That will be made clear for the whole world. And Jesus is everlasting father, both as the kindly, compassionate father figure to his people and as the one who eternally reveals the father as God's greatest revelation. And Jesus is prince of peace, as Colossians 1.20 says. He made peace by the blood of his cross. We can look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, and we can walk through and see how Jesus fulfills all of this. All of humanity was in darkness, but a light has been revealed to us. And now joy has been given to man because Jesus Christ has removed their greatest oppressor. The greatest oppressor of man, the greatest oppressor you have is sin. And Jesus, through the blood of his cross, removes the yoke of sin from our shoulders. He breaks the rod of the oppressor, the devil, and he removes the burden of death itself. Someday Jesus will return as the mighty God and put an end to all war. But the war between you and God that did exist has been dealt with. Peace has been established for you now. And Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, has made a way for you to be reconciled to God. Jesus is the promised son. He is the king of all creation. And he sits now on the throne of David and he will rule forever. Tomorrow's Christmas. A time when the church stops and celebrates the fact that to us, a child is born, a son is given. The promised son of Eve who would crush the head of the snake the promised son of David who would rule on his throne forever, the high priest of a new and better covenant, the Lord over all creation, the mighty God and prince of peace, the savior of humanity was actually truly born of a virgin 2,000 years ago and placed in a lowly manger. That God. In a stable, alone and cold. That's what we celebrate tonight. Praise God for Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, that reminds us of the greatness of the incarnation. Amen? But let's not forget the humble estate that Jesus took on himself. He was not born in a palace. He was born in the lowest place with the animals, which is a sign to you that nobody is too far from God. The mighty God, the everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, is close to you. 
And by faith, through his blood, you can be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word that teaches us who your son is. Lord, let us, let us believe. Give us faith, Lord. We believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, oftentimes we come to Christmas and we have a good time. We celebrate with family. We even come to a service like this because it makes grandma happy. Impress upon our hearts here today the importance of your son, the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, we thank you that we can be in relationship with you because of what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.